Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. But one of the things as we begin to move into Advent uh, properly is we come to an, a national holiday of Thanksgiving. And whatever you think of the, the holiday of Thanksgiving, and I know there's questions about whether history's been painted accurately or not, or probably hasn't been, and what would be accurate, and, and that, that's all, we're going to leave that where it is. That's not for us to discuss, because our, our concern is greater than just our own history, even in America. Our concern is, you know, when Abraham Lincoln instituted Thanksgiving, his whole point was that it's time to stop and remember that all our blessings come from something greater than ourselves, even greater than our country. They come from God. And we should stop and take a moment as a nation to be grateful to God for all the blessings we have. And it's interesting that he instituted this or called for this not in a moment when everything was particularly positive looking in America. In fact, this was, this was right at the, the, you could say the end of the Civil War, but I'm not even sure that the end was clear. But right during the end of the Civil War, he says we need to recognize the blessings that God has given us, that we exist at all. And so as Christians, more than anybody, we certainly should have this recognition that, that it's good to step back and recognize the need to thank God, to be gratitude. And I want to reflect on gratitude tonight. As we, as we think of this idea that proper reflection may lead to genuine celebration, what does it mean to reflect on gratitude? What is it and how do we do it? And so I actually decided intentionally, as I wanted to look at gratitude, to pick one of the most challenging verses about gratitude in the New Testament, because I want us to think deeply for a moment about this. Because it's, it has to be more than simply saying, praise God with, with no feeling towards that when something bad happens, right? Have you ever seen people who do that? Something bad happens, they're like, well, praise God. But they don't mean it. It's a sarcastic phrase as much as anything. And it has to be more than simply trying to buck ourselves up. That, well, it, it could be worse. I mean, that's true. And sometimes that is a perspective that helps. But if that's the best we can get, it's hard to be too grateful about the fact that it could always be worse somewhere else. So there has to be more to it than that. So I want us to look. We're going to start. We're going to take Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians 5, 15 through 20, uh, we're going to look at 21 too, but this, this first slide only has 20. 15 through 20, he says this. Paul says this. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to break this down a little bit. I want to walk through this verse. I think we may discover something even in the challenge of that phrase, always give thanks for everything, which if you take that seriously, becomes challenging. But as we begin to explore the profundity of this whole verse, I think, I think we'll find something even more beautiful, perhaps, than we've noticed before, or be reminded of it if we've already seen it. Let's pray, and then we'll start walking through Ephesians 5 a little bit here. Heavenly Father, we do thank you tonight for being here. We thank you that we're here. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that we're here together. We thank you that you are in our midst Lord, we thank you for worship and for praise and for the ability to just refocus our hearts and our minds on you. We thank you that your love remains. 
And I pray that tonight you would open our hearts and open our eyes and open our minds to things, to see things with new eyes, with fresh insight. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us tonight. And these things we pray in your son's name. Amen. He says, be careful how you live, not as unwisely, but as wisely. Be careful how you live. So he starts off this passage in Ephesians 5 by saying, be intentional, right? Recognize that you need to be careful about living. Living isn't just something that sort of happens around you or even that sort of happens passively through you, or at least he's suggesting that it doesn't need to be and shouldn't be. He says, live carefully. Approach life with intention. Be aware of something. And he gives a really interesting reason for living carefully. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise what is wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. <laughs> That's an interesting phrase. Days in this context are not just neutral. Days in this context are not good. Days in this context are not just sort of there for you to make whatever out of them. Days have a bent and the bent is evil. And I don't think Paul means by that that at the time he's writing, they were particularly more evil than they are today or than they had been before that. It could be he's saying that, but I don't think he is. I think what he's really expressing here is that that is the nature of days in a fallen world, that they have a bent towards evil. It's like entropy, physical entropy. You don't have to do anything to make entropy happen. That's the whole point about entropy. Entropy happens. Things decay. Things fall apart, right? If you don't do something special speaking from years and years of personal experience, if you don't do something special to maintain your car, it falls apart. If you don't do something special to maintain your body, it falls apart. If you just let things sit as they are, they fall apart. This is one of the curses of living in a fallen world, <clears throat> is that things fall apart. There's a bent towards decay. There's an entropy that happens. But it's like Paul is saying in the spiritual realm, in terms of our souls, just in terms of, of goodness itself, the days have a bent too. And if we don't do something special, if we aren't living carefully, the days will always bend towards evil. There's an entropy for good in that sense too. We live in a fallen world and the corruption leads things in evil directions. Therefore, because there's a bent, because the days are evil, it's important that we live carefully. And to live carefully means to live wisely. To live wisely means to understand the world as it is and to make the most of it and every opportunity. Take advantage of every moment you have to change that bent towards evil to something good. It's a strong statement right off the bat, isn't it? It's a statement of intentionality. It's a statement of cause. It's a statement of care. It's a statement of being aware but I think we have to keep going to understand what he means by that. What, is, what, what would that mean then, to be, to be wise? What would that mean to be careful how we live? Well, he goes on, and he says, therefore, do not be foolish. Okay, let's be honest, that's just a redundant, that's just a repeated statement, right? Live wisely rather than unwisely. Then he says, don't be foolish. That's the same statement, but he's going to add to it now. <clears throat> he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. At this moment, he is equating living wisely being careful how you live, understanding what the days are, <clears throat> making the most of every opportunity, and not being foolish is now all being equated with understanding the Lord's will. 
And even in a very broad sense, we get this, right? If we knew exactly what God wanted us to do, we could do that, and that would be wise. And that becomes the constant sort of pursuit for a lot of us is, well, what is God's will then? And we're looking for that specific thing we're supposed to do today. Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I marry this person? Should I leave this person? Should I get up this morning? <laughs> we begin to look at the very specifics for God's will, but Paul is going to give us a picture of God's will here that is both simpler and more challenging. So what is God's will? What is it to live wisely? What is the will of God that we can follow that will cause us to live wisely? And that's when he goes on. And he goes on, and the next thing he does is he contrasts being drunk with wine to being filled with the Spirit. In fact, the word is the same. What he literally says here is, instead of being intoxicated with wine, be intoxicated with the Spirit. But they do, they have very different results. So they mean very different things. He says, you go after beer, you go after alcohol, you go after wine, you drink that. And does that lead to wisdom? Does it lead to living carefully? No, it does not. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cough drop for me. Does that lead to living carefully when you drink alcohol, when you're intoxicated? No, we all know that. I had the unenviable, un, unenviable position. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not drunk now. I have the unenviable position. When I was in high school, I, didn't, I, I was the designated driver. I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't like alcohol. And the more I didn't drink alcohol, the more I got to see how it affected all my friends and the less I ever wanted to. Because sometimes they thought they were really smart and clever when they were drunk. And I got to see how not true that was. They were foolish. They became more foolish the more they drank. And this is what Paul is saying, that when you're filled with wine, it leads to debauchery. It leads to an, an, a lack of care in how you live, a complete lack of care. He says, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll look at why he uses that contrast a little bit later, but let's just follow the thread for now. He says, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if drinking wine leads you to lack of care and to debauchery, what does being filled with the Holy Spirit lead to? And this is what he says. He actually says four things. We're only going to look at three of them because the fourth one is in verse 21. At the end, I'm going to tell you why it's not on this slide and tell you why I think it should be. I mean, I made the slide, so you'd say, why didn't you put it there? But I'll explain all that. <laughs> but he gives three things here before the fourth. He says this, being filled with the Spirit leads to speaking with psalms and hymns and songs. He says being filled with the Spirit leads to singing and making music from the heart. And he says, being filled with the Spirit leads to giving thanks to God the Father. Now, it's pretty clear these are all three almost the same thing, aren't they? I mean, if you think about them, they're really all this idea of, of joy and gratitude that's bubbling from the heart and coming out, right? I mean, someone who speaks in songs is, is in a musical, and, and musicals, everybody's bubbly and happy. We know that. <laughs> But this idea that you can't help but sing, that even when you speak, it has a lilt to it because it's bubbling up from the inside. And then the idea that you're singing and making music from the heart, that your heart is producing music. And then he says, give thanks. And if we read give thanks in any kind of tone differently than the first two, we're missing the point of giving thanks. This is not just a, a lip service thing. This is not giving thanks in terms of, well, I'm just going to say the right things. 
This is giving thanks which flows from the heart. This is that you are celebrating and you are grateful and it's coming from the heart. So this command is even more difficult than perhaps you thought. <laughs> because it isn't something you can just do, change your behavior to see happen. He says, be filled with the Spirit. That's the command. He says, as a result of that, you will sing and make music in your heart. You will speak to one another with those songs. And you will give thanks always for everything. So it's not a command about pretending something. It's not a command about bucking up. It's not a command about simply even looking on the bright side. It's a command about somehow being so filled with the joy and gratitude of God that it comes out in our lives. And it's a command to essentially be so filled with God to such a degree that joy and gratitude flow from our lives in all ways at all times. Now, I want to give a brief note to avoid confusion. My understanding about the Holy Spirit and what I think Paul says pretty clearly and Scripture says is that when you receive Christ, you, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is placed in you at that moment, not through any work of your own, but as a gift of God to you. It is a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit is placed in us. That's not what this is talking about. This idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit is, again, he uses the word filled here because he's contrasting it with the idea of being filled by alcohol. That's why he uses that terminology here. And what he means is being so controlled by God in you, just as you're controlled by alcohol in you, right? It leads to debauchery. You surrender to alcohol, and it leads you to foolishness. You surrender to God, and it leads you to joy and gratitude. That's the difference. Which is ironic, because sometimes we surrender to things like alcohol because we hope they will make us feel better. And you know, what Paul says is that they make you worse, but surrendering to the Holy Spirit makes you genuinely feel better. Joy and gratitude abound. So this is about sort of living, f being controlled, surrendering to that filling of the Holy Spirit. Surrendering to the Spirit in your life to such a degree that he guides and leads. And so your heart is filled with this joy and this music. And, Paul says, this is the Lord's will. What is the Lord's will for your life? That you would be filled with God to such a degree that you would resonate with joy and celebration. Just to let you know, I'm not just grabbing one verse that, that is here, just to take a brief look at Philippians 5, 16 through 18. It says this, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is God's will for you to rejoice, give thanks, and right in the middle of that, pray continually, which I think is the surrender, right? There's this connection between surrendering to God, submitting our lives to him, looking to him, having his perspective, praying to him, and then rejoicing in all circumstances and giving thanks in all circumstances. And this is God's will for us. Now, you may argue at this point whether this is difficult or easy or even possible, right? You can look at your circumstances and say, Hi, I don't think I could give thanks in this circumstance. Or even more dramatically, as Ephesians says, I don't know if I can give thanks for this circumstance. You can say that. We'll, we'll look at that in a second. But I do want you to at least make this change of perspective if it's a change for you. What you can't do is say that that sounds unpleasant. Wouldn't, doesn't it sound like a good will for you that God says, my will for you is that you would be joyful and genuinely grateful? That's a good thing. That's something most of us ardently desire. 
We want to be people who experience genuine joy and genuine gratitude more often. So at least we are in agreement with the will of God, even if we're not so sure about the possibility of the will of God. But I think at least being in agreement with it is a good start. But let's go back to the previous verse and look at one of the real sticking points. It's these words always and everything. Always giving thanks for everything. I think if we take this seriously, it's tough. I think if we take this seriously, it's not only hard, potentially impossible, but I think sometimes you might even ask if it's even right. Bad things happen, yes? People do bad things, and it's bad. Injustice happens. Illness happens. Death happens. Bad things happen. How then is it right for us to give thanks for all those bad things? How is it right for us to always give thanks for all things when some of those all things are bad things? <laughs> it's a challenge, isn't it? I think it's hard. And I think there's only one context in which we can understand this. If we're going to take it seriously, and I think we should. The only context in which we can understand this happens to be a context which came naturally to Paul and not so much to us. <laughs> which might explain why he used it and we struggle with it. The context that comes naturally to Paul is this understanding of God. And it's an understanding that God is sovereign and gracious all at once. Paul has this understanding of God that says, and he has this understanding because it is the Israelite understanding. You read the Old Testament and sometimes there's weird passages like where it says that God sent an evil spirit to Saul. And you say, why would God send an evil spirit? And you, and you see that the Israelites had this firm conviction that God is the ultimate authority over everything that happens in the entire universe. That nothing happens without God being aware of it and at a minimum allowing it and sometimes absolutely causing it. Now, I'm not going to make the distinction between allowing and causing it because I don't know. I'm not in God's job for which you can all be grateful. And I think it is fair. I think it helps us understand to say there are things God allows and God causes, so that, that's all good. But whether he allows or causes, the Israelites understood that it's still God's fault. He is to blame for all things. <laughs> they could not conceive of an event which would happen to which God was either had turned a blind eye or was unable to change. They understood that he knew all things and had all power. But I think that one of the reasons the Israelites had an easier, easier place, now I say easier, although we see all sorts of Old Testament prophets who wrestled with this. Job wrestled with this idea of God's sovereignty in the midst of his suffering. Habakkuk wrestled with this idea of God's sovereignty in the midst of injustice. David wrestles with the idea of God's sovereignty in the midst of the, 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 the bad people surviving and thriving while the, while the good people don't. The wrestling still happens, but it's a little bit easier for the Israelites to embrace this because I think along with their understanding of God's sovereignty, they also found it less difficult for, to believe than we do in our culture they found it less difficult to believe that God was smarter than they were and that God was more perfect in his righteousness than they were. That God was not only all-powerful, but he also knew better. 
And he not only knew better, but he actually was better. That his judgments were more right than ours. So when Job argues with God and says, God, this is not how I would have done things. And this looks wrong. I've been righteous and I'm being punished. And that doesn't seem right. Even within the worst moments of Job, you can see that in the back of his mind, there's this little part of him that's saying, but it's entirely possible I'm just all wrong. It's entirely possible, God, that you're smarter than I am, and I just need to hear you to know if that's true. And that's how the book of Job ends. God shows up and says, here I am. And without actually answering Job's questions, but simply saying, here I am, and this is how smart I am, and this is how good I am, and this is how strong I am, Job says, yep, that, you're right. See, it's one thing to believe in a God who's all-powerful, but it's another thing to believe in a God who's all-powerful, but also always right. Not just philosophically right, not just logically right, but morally, emotionally right. He is good, and he is right. And you add to that Paul's understanding of grace, that God is also more loving of us than we are of ourselves. And you find that Paul has this ability to say, this looks like a bad thing to me, and I don't understand why it's happening, and I don't know why a good God would do this, but the fact that I don't understand it only reminds me that God is smarter than I am, and not that he's wrong. That's hard. It's hard in a bad situation when you can't see anything good. And there are some caveats and some nuances I'll make in a second, but I want to make sure we get this broad point first. It's difficult when we can see nothing good in a situation to be able to step back and say, maybe God actually sees a bigger picture than I see myself. You know, I, I know, it, think about when you were a child, and some of you who have children can also relate this way, but, but we've all been children. And when I was a child and I was growing up, there were things that my parents did that I was just convinced were wrong. They wouldn't let me do this, or they wouldn't let me do that, or they made me do this, or they made me do that. And there were times I just thought, they're just wrong. They don't understand me. They don't understand life. They think this is important, and they're just wrong. Having had children, I can attest to the fact that that's a really common way for children to think. And then as I got older, I've been able to look back and recognize, not at all times, but that there were definitely times where something looked like the wrong thing to me, and looking back I say, that was the right thing. They did the right thing. And that has taught me in life that sometimes I can be convinced I know what's right, and I can be completely wrong. Now, with our parents it's a little different, because I can also look back and see that there were times they made mistakes. Because our parents do. But the confidence God has I mean, that Paul has, I suppose God has this confidence too, it's a little different there, but the confidence that Paul has is that God is perfect in all his ways. That's how David puts it. He is perfect in all his ways. So every circumstance, no matter what it is, no matter what it looks like, no matter how bad it is, no matter what's happening in front of us, no matter how impossible it is for us to see any good in it at all, Paul says we can still give thanks for that because God, if God is allowing it, it's because he loves you and he's looking out for you. And I know there are circumstances where you say that makes no sense at all. But that's the, that's the open mind. 
That's the consideration you have to hold there. And this isn't just wishful thinking. This is the promise. Many of you are familiar with Romans 8, 28, where he says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Now, we don't have time to go through all of Romans 8 today, but if we did, I would show you that when this pops up, when he says this phrase, those who love him and are called according to his purpose, this is not a challenge saying, do you love him enough? And if you don't, God's not on your side. This is simply a shorthand saying for believers. And I could show you this in Romans 8, but we don't have time. When Paul says, we know that in all things good works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he means, and he's been clear earlier in, Paul, in Romans, this is what he means, God works all things for the good of those who have been saved by him, who have accepted his salvation. Those are the people Paul describes as who love him and are called according to his purpose. Those are synonymous ideas to him. So as a believer, it's possible to be thankful because we know that God is working everything out for our benefit. Everything. No matter how bad, how tortured, how wrong it is, we have this confidence that God is going to, if he allowed it <clears throat> at all, we know that he's going to use it to make us more like him, to mold us into his image, an image which is full of joy and gratitude, an image which is filled with songs and music. That that is his commitment to us. Everything that happens, we can thank him that that is what he is doing at that moment, no matter what it is. Not a single hurt, not a single injustice, not a single wicked deed is done that God cannot and does not use to bring you into the image of who he is. Here's the interesting thing. Although this says this verse is for believers, and it is, there's a way in which it's also true for unbelievers. Very quickly, let me give you this. Because I want you to see that God is working for the benefit of everybody. There's one very important distinction with unbelievers, but, and that's what Paul's making here, but here's how it works. See, we're also told in Scripture that God is wooing everybody to him. That he wants all men to be saved and turn from sin. And so he uses every circumstance in everybody's life to bring them to him, to woo them his direction. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that a believer has at some point in his life said, I accept your work in my life and your salvation in my life. And at that moment, God says, then, I, then you are giving over a portion of your free will to me. And now there's nothing you can do that will prevent me from making you perfect. But an unbeliever has never said that. And for those people, God tries to woo them to him, and he woos them, and he tries to use every circumstance to bring them to him. But in the final analysis, if their response to God is ultimately, I will not give up my free will to be made perfect, then God, being a God of love, says, okay, I won't control you. So for them, he allows the consequences of their choices. For believers... We've given up to him the consequences of our choices, and he makes them good. So, let me restate this, and then let me give you a couple caveats. But I don't want to lose the restatement before we get to the caveats. We can be grateful for everything, because as believers, we know that God is working in everything that happens to us, no matter how bad, no matter how hideous, no matter how wrong or how good. God is using all of it to mold us into his image where life and joy and gratitude abounds. And Paul says if we surrender to that will of God and allow ourselves to be filled with that, intoxicated with that, 
then we can have joy and gratitude now, always, at all times. Now, it is important to give a couple caveats. Because there were things I didn't say, but you might think I said. So I want to be really clear about what I didn't say. And if when I make this caveat, if your thought is, well, that's not compatible with what he just said, then what I want to encourage you is, I don't agree with you. <laughs> I think that what I just said is compatible with the caveats I'm going to make, but you might have to dig a little deeper to get there. So here's the caveats. Number one, we can be and even should be sorrowful or angry and grateful at the same time. If what you hear me saying when I say that we are to give thanks and rejoice in all circumstances for all things, if what you hear me saying is that you should never be angry at injustice or sad or grieving or anxious or frustrated, then let me assure you that is not what I'm saying. In fact, we know this to be true because that is also God's command. Mourn with those who mourn. There is a time for grieving. And rejoice always. So, God apparently believes you can rejoice and give thanks and also feel sorrow. You can rejoice and give thanks and also feel anger for the injustice that exists. There is nothing in what I've said that says that you must call bad things good. Injustice is still injustice. God still sees it that way. But you can still be grateful for what God is doing in the midst of that. You know, this is not a perfect example, but it is a very good one from the Old Testament is Joseph. Joseph has some brothers who want to kill him. Everyone agrees. That's a bad thing. They want to kill him. They throw him in a pit, most of them with the intention of leaving him there to die. One of them has the intention to rescue him. But before that one can rescue him, they see some Ishmaelites pass by and they decide instead to sell him into slavery. We all agree. Slavery is a bad thing. Nobody's saying it isn't. He gets sold into slavery. He gets taken to Egypt. He works very hard. That's a good thing. He works very hard, does the right thing, and he gets elevated to a place where he has a little bit of responsibility. Then he gets approached by his boss's wife who tries to seduce him, and he resists her. That's a good thing. Her seducing him is bad. His resisting is good. Justice would be he should be rewarded for that, and the result of that is he gets punished for that, he gets falsely accused, and he gets thrown in prison. While he's in prison, he helps out some of his fellow prisoners. He helps them. He interprets dreams for them. He gives the credit to God. That's a good thing. Justice would say that the good thing for that is he should be rewarded, but instead he's forgotten, and he languishes in prison for longer. Finally, finally, finally one day, God elevates him out of prison, ends up putting him in the second place. He's the most powerful man in the world next to the Pharaoh himself, his, his brothers come, he reunites with them, and he forgives them. Those are all good things. But in the midst of this story, there's a lot of bad things. And when his brothers ask him how he can forgive them, Joseph says this interesting statement. He says, what you did to me was evil. Anybody want to argue with that? No. <laughs> what you did to me was evil. And he says, your motivations were all evil. And they didn't argue with that, so he was probably right. But then he says this, but God did it for my good. What you intended for evil, God intended for my good. This is that weird tension where Joseph acknowledges it was wrong, it was unjust, it was bad. 
And yet, he recognizes God's hand in it and God's work. Now, it's much easier to be grateful and recognize God's hand in it when you're at top of the world than it is when you're in prison. But I do think if you read the story carefully, one of the things about Joseph that we're supposed to emulate, that we should see as a model, is that even when he was in prison, he thought the same way. He was still grateful to God for the work that God was doing. He was still able in the midst of the evil to see the hand of God in the good that he was doing. So yes, bad things happen. Evil happens. The days are evil. Even Paul acknowledges that. But in all that evil that God allows, there's not a single element, there's not a single hurt that's wasted, there's not a single injustice that's unseen by God. And all of it God uses to bring us to him, to make us like him. And for that, we can give thanks even in those circumstances. We can grieve while being confident of the good being done in us. Another nice example is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. So Jesus has a really good friend. His name is Lazarus and, and Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha are good friends. They send a message to Jesus when he's away that Lazarus is dying and Jesus does not rush. He, it says in, in the story, he delays. He doesn't go immediately to their side. And when he does go to their side, Lazarus is dead. And they come to him and they say, very understandably, if you'd been here, he would have lived. And I think we're kind of mad about that. I don't think they say, I think I'm saying, I think they were kind of mad about that. And there's an interesting thing. Jesus stands there and in a part of him, he was probably chuckling inside because he knew that what was about to happen was going to make them happier than they'd ever been. He was going to bring Lazarus to life and it was going to heal all the wounds of his death. He was going to bring Lazarus to life and they were going to learn that life is more powerful than death. What they were going to learn as a result of this was so much bigger than the pain that they were feeling now. And he could have simply been to, said to them, don't be sad, it's going to be okay. He didn't say that. Instead, what he did, that very famous verse, Jesus wept. At that moment, why did he weep? Did, why did he weep? Because he knew it was going to be okay. He knew it was going to be fine. So why did he weep? Because Jesus can grieve with us at the pain he's allowing us to go through. Remember, Jesus delayed coming back so that he could show them, as he says, this incredible lesson of the glory of God, a lesson which would make them more joyful and more grateful and give them a new zest for life. But he caused them this pain by delaying. And he could have said to them, I had good reason. He does, but not right away. First, he says, let me cry with you. He weeps and grieves, even though he knows the good that's being done. And if our God, if our Lord can grieve and know without doubt that the good will outweigh the bad and undo the bad, then certainly we can grieve and give thanks without knowing how it all fits together. Second caveat I want to give is that God can, and I believe often does, simply protect us from sorrow and pain. To say that God works in all things and that he allows suffering and that it's hard for us, but we should give thanks because we know he's working in it, is not to say that God never spares us sorrow and pain. Now, this is difficult because I can't prove it and you can't prove otherwise. So we're a little bit of an impasse, right? There's no way for us to ever know what sorrow we didn't experience because we didn't experience it. <laughs> I suspect, and I'll tell you why I suspect it in a second, but there's no way to prove this, but I suspect 
that God spares us a lot of sorrow and pain. Now, he doesn't spare us all of it. And he doesn't distribute it equally. And that's difficult to understand. Some days you have more than I do. Some days I have more than you. And some people's lives are much more miserable than mine. Let's be honest. Anybody who lived in previous century stars had a lot less opportunity for happiness than we do. So I think he does spare us pain. And I'll go further than that. I think the reason I think he spares us pain is because what scripture does tell us is that he delights in giving good gifts just like a good father would. And what I know about good fathers and what I know about my attempt to be a good father, I know more about what I want to be than about what I actually am when it comes to being a good father. But knowing what I want to be at least lets me know what I know goodness is. <laughs> he says a good, a good father likes to give good gifts, delights in seeing his children rejoice. I think God is that way. If he grieves with us when we grieve, he doesn't want to make us grieve. I think it's fair to say, controversial statement among evangelical circles, but I will clarify, God does in fact want us to be happy. But like a good parent, I want my kids to be happy, but I am willing to actually cause them pain on the road to actual happiness. Because I have the bigger picture and the wisdom and the foresight and the hindsight to see some things will make them happy now and more miserable in the long term. And I would rather make them more miserable now and more happy in the long term, but I would never want anyone to say of me that I don't want my children to be happy. So too, God wants us to be happy. In fact, isn't that where we're going? To be made in his image, where we experience joy and gratitude. And if your definitions of joy and gratitude have been so spiritualized that they have nothing to do with the feeling of happiness, I am sorry for you. And I want to tell you that, that someone taught you wrong. The difference between joy and happiness, I don't think, is the way they feel. The difference is the permanence of them. Happiness comes and goes. But joy is a well-being that lasts even in the midst of difficult situations. I think God looks forward to the day that we feel no more sorrow. It's that day that he looks to and chuckles at, knowing that just like Mary and Martha with Lazarus, there will be a day where the good will so outweigh the bad, it will actually undo the bad. But we can't see that when Lazarus is dead. That makes no sense to us when Jesus failed to come. But this is who God is. And if he's a God who delights in giving good gifts, then it makes, only makes sense to me that he's also a God who will spare us pain whenever he can. I think this confidence in who God is, sovereign, powerful, loving, good, smart, wise, perfect, this confidence in who God is is what allows Paul to say, give thanks for everything. Because the God who's in charge of it all is that God. And he has promised, he has committed to do it on your part. So the Lord's will is that we be filled with the spirit reflecting in a perspective of joy and gratitude. So if that's God's work, if that's where he's leading us, what are the exhortation, exhortations to us? This is a work of God, right? The spirit fills us. He's going to make us this way. We are to be reflecting this being filled in the spirit. What is our part? Well, Paul does tell us some things. And I think what it all comes down to, if I can say it first simply, and then I'll give you a list is this. 
It comes down to just being open to God being the kind of God I told you who he is. <laughs> because if we're open to God being the kind of God that Scripture tells us he is, that means we'll be open to surrendering to him. But if he's any other kind of God, surrender is dangerous and wrong and probably impossible. But to the degree we can believe that our God is sovereign and out for your benefit and looking to mold you into this image of his, to that degree, we can experience joy and gratitude even when Lazarus is in the tomb. As well as grief. So how does Paul tell us to be open to this idea of who God is. Here's how he tells us. Number one, be careful how you live. Be mindful of the true nature of the world. Recognize that evil is real, but the spiritual reality is real too. Recognize that perspective or faith, believing in a God who is good and sovereign and loving, that that is probably the most important part of the battle we fight. I know we don't believe that, and that isn't the Hollywood version, right? We want to have exciting power. We want to, like, you know... It's interesting to me that John and James came to Jesus and they wanted to be able to call fire down from heaven. At one point they're like, let us call fire down from heaven. And I think Jesus was like, that is not the power I'm giving you. I'm giving you much better power than that. I'm giving you the power of joy and gratitude in the midst of trials and tribulations, which for John and James will lead to your death. Well, John got to live. Forever. No, that was a rumor. He did not live forever. He did die, as we all do. Number one, be careful how you live. Live with faith. Live believing in this God. Make the most of opportunity. Be joyful and rejoice by focusing on this God who is this God of goodness. Number two, he says, don't get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think here he's giving us a really important warning. Don't seek good feelings at the expense of actual joy and gratitude. See, I think sometimes we get the impression God likes to keep us from pleasure. There are all sorts of pleasurable things he says don't do or only do in the right context, right? sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is. There's all sorts of things he gives these restrictions on. And sometimes we get this idea that God is simply restricting us because he doesn't want us to feel pleasure. He doesn't want us to feel joy that somehow that's bad. I think the opposite is true. I think God knows of these things that they provide a temporary intoxication which leads to debauchery. They, they provide a temporary good feeling which robs us of the much deeper and real joy and gratitude to come. We settle, says C.S. Lewis, for mere pleasure when God wants to bring us everlasting joy. So, says, says Paul, don't seek good feelings at the expense of actual joy and gratitude. It's too small a goal. That's why God opposes such things. Instead, seek to be intoxicated by the incredible truth of who God is and that he lives inside you. Philippians goes on to give us some more examples. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. You see the theme here, right? Similar idea. I think giving thanks for everything and rejoicing always are very similar ideas, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I love this verse, but one of the reasons I love this passage is because he throws a bunch of stuff in that at first sounds unrelated, right? He's like, rejoice, be gentle, God's here. <laughs> don't, don't be anxious, give thanks. You're like, what? I actually think they're all very connected. They're all part of this surrender to God. They're all part of this approach that says God is smarter than I am and I need to keep my mind open to the fact that what's happening now 
can still have God's hand of goodness in it if I'm just willing to accept that, even if I don't understand it. Because let's see what he says. First of all, he says, rejoice always. That's just the base to give thanks for everything. Rejoice always. Then he says this, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. I think those two are very connected, but they feel very disconnected at first, right? It's like, what does gentleness have to do with rejoicing? And what does gentleness have to do with the Lord being near? And how are these all connected? I think they're very connected in this sense. What is gentleness? You know what gentleness is? First of all, you recognize that gentleness only applies to people with strength right? Somebody who has the strength to destroy you is gentle when they don't. Someone who doesn't have the strength to destroy you is just weak when they don't. Do you understand the difference? That's why God is the most gentle being in the entire universe. Because every second we take another breath is a sign of God's gentleness. Because he could just not even that. <laughs> and we're all gone. His power is unbelievably more aggressive than ours. But that's also why we see that in real life. That's why when we see a grown man who is being harsh with a young boy or a woman who's weaker physically than him, we see that as a problem in his gentleness. And we're more concerned about a, a grown man being gentle with the young boy than we are if that same young boy is less gentle to the grown man, right? We're less concerned because it's an issue of power and strength. And only people with power and strength can actually be gentle. But there's another way to think of power and strength, and that's control. Whoever has control has the choice to be gentle or not. And I think when he says, let your gentleness be evident to all, he is telling us, yes, chill on your power a little bit, but I think he's also saying chill on the control. And... and and as a reminder that you're not in control, God's here. <laughs> and he is in control. Now, I think there's two ways to read that. One is, I know that in, my pa in the past when I've been harsh with my kids, I, 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 I realized this thing, which is just true. No matter how I sliced it, it was just true. I didn't like it, but it was true. And I think it's true, and I've seen it with other people too. I was always more gentle with my kids if other people were watching me. It wasn't in my head. It wasn't like I think, oh, I better be gentle. People are watching me. But I just noticed there is a restraint on me <laughs> if other people are watching. I think we're all that way. We speak to our spouses and our kids and our friends in ways we didn't, wouldn't do if other people were watching. Well, what if we know the Lord is watching? I mean, he's there all the time. But I don't think that's it. I don't think it's just the fear of God's judgment. I think that's a good recognition. God is there. But I think it's more than that. I think it's that when I wasn't gentle with my kids, it was almost always because I was afraid of where they were going and what they were doing. And so I wanted to control them more so that I could keep them safe. And when God said to me, you can't control your kids, they're human beings. Then I said, well, then who's going to protect them? And God said, guess what? I'm near. I'm here. I'm here. And I still had an obligation to protect them, but I found I could do it gently. I found that I could release the control because the Lord was near. And I think this is true in life in general. We can handle life more gently. We don't have to be so rigid and controlling and fearful and, and trying to wrestle everything in our grasp, trying to make everything work out. If everything in your life, you're trying to make it work the way it needs to work, and then when it doesn't work out that way, your gratitude, your joy, and your gentleness all go out the window because you forgot the Lord is near. So this is another way that we, we submit to this, this gratitude and this joy of the Spirit by recognizing 
we can be more gentle. We can be less controlling. We can surrender a bit. Because not only is God watching us, he's got this. He's got this. You don't have to wrestle it from him. There's a submission and a surrender, which is a necessary part of a perspective of faith and being filled with the Spirit. You can't surrender to the filling of the Spirit, to being led by the Spirit, if you don't surrender. And that leads to his next point. He says, don't be anxious. That's rough. I think what he's really saying is this. Don't accept anxiety as necessary or wise or protective. The truth is that anxiety has a place, as all emotions do. I think it has a place. But for some of us, we become convinced that the place anxiety has is as protector. That if we listen to our anxiety, it keeps us safe. I mean, there's a practical sense you can sort of work that out that seems to make sense. You're like, well, I'm worried about this, so I'm worried about it, so I'll plan. And then because I plan, that'll keep me safe. And then you were worried about it the whole time, then everything worked out okay, and you look back and you go, anxiety was my protector. But there's a big difference, first of all, between planning and anxiety. If you want to argue planning is your protector, that can be done without anxiety. But I think God wants to go further. And I think he wants to say, anxiety is not what keeps you safe. I am. Anxiety is not your king. I am. So I think that's what he means when he says, don't be anxious. Don't think that your anxiety is what's going to get you made to be. The truth is the reality in life is that the most anxious people are not the safest people. There's no, no correlation there. The most anxious people are not the healthiest people. The most anxious people are not the happiest people. There's no correlation there in which anxiety has produced that. If you're filled with anxiety, it does not lead to making music in your heart. But if you're filled with the Spirit, it does. The most anxious don't always win. I think anxiety is a, it's a shade of fear, right? All, all, all emotions have shades, just like colors, just like primary colors. There's like primary emotions and then there's shades. And I think anxiety is a shade of fear. And I think the fear has a very specific purpose and anxiety follows that purpose purpose is quite simple it's to remind you of something that you resist almost all the time <laughs> if you had no fear no anxiety you would possibly forget what i'm about to tell you and i would too <laughs> anxiety and fear has the purpose to remind you you are not in control see when we feel anxious what do we do we try to get in control but the point of anxiety is to remind you you're not in control but it's okay, says Paul, because we can make our petitions to the one who is. If we respond to the anxiety and fear in our lives and recognize we're actually not in control, then we can turn to the God who is in control. We can lay our petitions before him. I do like, though, that he says, very importantly, when you lay your petitions before him, you have to do it with thanksgiving. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One is it goes back to everything we've been talking about. There's a submission in that. They're saying, I'm going to give this responsibility to you, God, and I'm going to trust so much and you're going to do it. I'm just going to be grateful instead of anxious. But I also think there's some practical things here. I think that anxiety is worries about something that hasn't happened yet. Yes? We're not anxious about things that have already happened. We're usually anxious about things that might happen. We might be unhappy about things that have happened, but we're anxious about things that might happen. Gratitude is often dwelling on things that have already happened that we know to be true that are good. And I think the reality of things that are good and solid, when you stack them up against the anxiety of things that are unknown, 
I think the brain has a hard time holding both at the same time. And so I think if you are giving thanks, it helps leave little, less room for the anxiety. I have done this, and I'm sure you have too, had anxious prayers where the entire prayer was really just me being anxious in a spiritual way. Right? It was just me finding things to worry about as I listed them before God. And maybe it was my planning. But how different is it if you cast the anxiety there and then you take a moment to give thanks for who God is, for what he's done, that he is sovereign, that nothing happens without his allowance, that he is good, that he's right, that he's smart, that he's powerful, that he's just, and he's doing it all for you. What difference that would make to our anxieties. So I think there's a little bit of a practical sense there as well. He then goes on and says this, and I want to be really clear about this. He says, when you do this, the peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts. The peace that transcends understanding will guard your hearts. Let's not miss the obvious point here. This is not a peace that logically makes sense. This is not simply a one-to-one -one formula of, I gave a lot of thanks, so the anxiety went away, so now I feel peaceful. No, he says specifically, it's a peace that makes no sense. Do you see that? <laughs> That's what transcends understanding means. It means that people will look at you, and you will look at yourself, and they will say, why aren't you worried? Because there's a peace that passes understanding. See, part of our problem is we keep coming back to this the old conclusion that we're smarter than God. That we know what's right and we know what's best. And when we cling to that, it fills us with anxiety because we're responsible for getting it right. Because if we don't, and we're smarter than God, well, now what? But if we're not smarter than God, and we don't get it right, oh, God's got this. God's got this. It's a peace which comes not from knowing that you figured out every eventuality and covered for it. It's a peace which comes from knowing that you can't possibly figure out every eventuality and cover for it but God can. In fact, God knows the eventuality which will happen. And he can cover it already. He's already there tomorrow while you're still wondering what it's going to look like. He goes on and he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, this is about denial. So denial. But it's a different kind of denial than you think of, right? So denial, we talk about denial. We say denial's not just a river in Egypt. And we're saying to people, don't pretend that everything's good when it's not, right? Accept the bad things in your life. And that's true. There's a form of denial which pretends that there is no bad in life. And that's not healthy. And that's not faithful. That's just fear, which is saying, I can't accept there are bad things because if there are bad things, I can't control it. If I can't control it, there's nothing left. So we go into denial and we only accept what we can control. And God would say to you, you can let go of the denial and accept bad things are there because you can believe that I am doing good in the midst of it. That's very different. But there's another kind of denial. And that's a denial which also comes from fear. But we make a good case for it not coming from fear, but coming from logic. But it comes from fear. Hear this out. There's another denial which says, I'm just going to not believe in beauty and goodness and justice and love. Because if I do, then I'll just be disappointed. And that is also just driven by fear of disappointment. 
It's driven by fear that those things actually don't exist. And therefore, you're going to deny them. And a denial of good things, which only embraces the dark, is just as fearful and faithless as a denial of bad things, which only embraces the light. So we could say, denial is a river which flows both ways. I know that isn't really true of a river, but we're going to say that anyway. Denial is a river which flows both ways. And I want to remind you that there will always be in every culture, and it's absolutely true in ours, there will be places, there will be pockets, there will be people in our culture who will always seek to remind you that darkness is real and substantive and powerful. And they will always seek to tear you down from any good that you think you see because misery loves company. And even Paul himself acknowledges the days are evil. But days flow and pass and God is the ancient of days and he is the beginning of days and he is the end of days and he will win. And therefore it is not naive to believe in happy endings. It's not naive to have confidence that love will never fail. It's not naive to believe that good will overcome evil. It's not naive to believe that the God who has no equal is actually looking out for you. And I know it's not naive because all of those things are actual scriptures. I didn't make any of those statements up. I pulled them out of scripture itself. Be careful how you live. Live wisely knowing these things to be true. God created this universe and he said, it's beautiful. I think that's a fair prayer phase of good. God created this universe and he said, it's good. And it got corrupted and corrupt though it is, the master's hand is still visible under everything. So the beauty is there to be seen. The good is there to be seen. The justice is there to be seen. The love is there to be seen. The truth is there to be seen. The truth is out there, but in a much better way than the X-Files thought. So look for it, consider it, and remember it. Why is this in here? Why does Paul say, if anything is beautiful, if anything is valuable, if anything is trustworthy, if anything is good, think on it? Because when you do, it reminds you of who God is. It redirects you back to the master who made this beautiful creation. And it reminds you that God is present. That he has not left his creation. He has not abandoned it. It reminds you that the God who makes beauty is making beauty from ashes in you. And in your life. And then he says this. He says, watch who you emulate. Our heroes are not always grateful men. And in fact, I fear, or women. And in fact, I fear in our culture that we have elevated whining and complaining and anger and outrage to a position that it does not deserve. And this is not just political. The truth is, I think leaders of all stripes and spheres <coughs> are often lazy. And when you're lazy, you discover, and I speak as a teacher of 30 years, I know the truth of this. Shamefully, I shouldn't know the truth of this, but I've done it enough to know the truth of this. It is always easier to motivate through anger and fear and guilt. You get immediate reactions to those. It makes you feel good as a teacher. It makes you feel good as a leader. You can push people directions by doing that. But they don't enact real change in people. Real change is enacted by leaders who take the harder route, the more difficult route, and attempt to motivate people through joy and gratitude and love. Why is it so easy to motivate through fear and anger and guilt? 
Here's the sad reality. Because as I look out at you guys, I know that those things are all just right under the surface. They just are. We've had a life. And there's been enough disappointment in it. And we've done enough wrong things. And we've seen enough injustice that anger and fear and guilt are right there. And unscrupulous men and women will tap into that. So watch who you follow. Watch who you emulate. Paul says, whatever you've seen in me and heard from me, put it into practice. Find those men and women who are grateful men and women. Find the leaders who are grateful leaders because they will lead you to gratitude and to joy and most likely to God. In fact, there's another reason that I think a grateful leader is a good leader. I think a grateful leader is a good leader because he has also learned the value of another undervalued virtue in our culture. Gratitude is the new mindfulness. We like to talk about mindfulness. Gratitude is the new mindfulness. Like mindfulness, it requires attention and intention and a shift in perspective. Unlike mindfulness, however, it also requires humility. And so for many, mindfulness will feel preferable. But do you know why a grateful leader is also a good leader? Because they've learned humility. They've learned that they're not in control of everything. They've learned that all their blessings are not due to their hard work. They learned that all their status is not due to their hard efforts. They've learned that everything they have is not simply because they did it better than the people around them. The leaders who have no gratitude, let's be honest, most of the leaders who have no gratitude think they are far better than you are. Because you need their help. And they didn't. <laughs> but they're wrong. They're wrong. All of us receive blessing and gift from God more than we ever could imagine. And even from each other. So a grateful leader is a humble leader. You can see why you have to be humble to be grateful because you have to be grateful to somebody whether it's another person or God himself, there's a recognition that your blessings are at least in part someone else's gift to you. Undeserved, but given. It makes condescension and superiority, even a certain kind of victimhood, less possible and less appealing. So let's wrap up here back at Ephesians 5.21. There's one more indication. I told you that there was actually a verse 21 that I didn't have on the slide. I didn't put it on the slide because that's the way most translations come across. They tell you this thing about being filled with the Spirit. They give you these list of Spirit-filled uh, indications, making music in your heart, singing with songs, and giving thanks for everything. And then there's a heading in most of your Bibles which says something like instructions for a good Christian household. And because of that heading, we all stop before verse 21 and assumes it has nothing to do with verses 15 through 20. Paul didn't write those headings. This is one of those moments where I would like to yank those headings out of every one of your Bibles because I think it's misleading. It is true that Paul goes on to talk about instructions in a Christian household, but I think he does what he usually does, which is he makes a seamless transition where the flow is contiguous, not where he suddenly decides to talk about something else. I think the fourth element of being filled with the Spirit is when he says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Submit. That's humility, isn't it? Be grateful. Sing and make music. But if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll also submit to each other. There's a humility in all of this. There's a surrender to not being in control, not only to God, but even with each other. And we don't like that. <laughs> That's complicated. I think being filled with the Spirit leads not only to joy and gratitude, but also to a joyful and grateful submission to each other and to Christ. It leads to humility. Gratitude and submission require we stop being God of our own lives. First of all, we're really bad at it. We just are. You try being God of your own life long enough, as most people have, and even if you feel like you have another choice, you recognize at some point you're just not good at it. And that's a dis despairing moment, unless there's someone else willing to take the pilot. Reigns, controls, handles. I lost my analogy, but you know what I'm saying. It's time to let someone else take the wheel. Oh, that's what I had written. How much simpler would that have been? I know. <laughs> Look, if you got nothing else from this today, and if you got nothing else from this, you're not listening well, you should go back and listen to the podcast. But if you got nothing else from this, if you need one point to cling to, let it be this. Gratitude comes as we surrender to the God who truly knows best and wants best for you. To the degree you can believe this is the degree to which you can see the beauty present in your own lives. And the degree to which you can see the beauty present in your own lives is the degree to which you will experience that joy and that gratitude. And it starts with the surrender. I'm going to close with a benediction. I want to go back. We've been in Ephesians. It's weird. We've been reading Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. We're actually going to close with Ephesians 1, 15 through 21. A guy who likes themes, I like to pretend that God did that on purpose, but I'm not sure, you know, God was that involved in the verses, but I suppose he could have been. I guess he was, as everything else. But in verses 15 through 21, we're going to read this as the benediction. But, but let me recap this really quickly before I do, just to get you in the right mindset or make sure you're still there. What is God's will? That we rejoice, that we feel genuine gratitude. Not that we pretend to be grateful to God, not that we express a gratitude we don't feel to God. He doesn't care about that. He's not insecure in that way, right? <laughs> but that we feel genuine gratitude, that we rejoice, that in that sense we be happy. He knows this comes from seeing the world with eyes of faith and seeing every day as a gift from a God who loves to gift us. Sometimes this is really hard. And sometimes we have to be careful how we live. And we have to make the most of every opportunity. We have to desperately look for what's beautiful and true and grasp every opportunity to give thanks because we're just not smart enough to see the whole picture that God sees. So as we read the benediction this evening, I want you to really pay attention to the words. I want you to listen as Paul prays this prayer and I want you to see how this prayer expands and agrees with this definition of God's will that he simply calls us to rejoice. And I want you to see exactly what he's praying for. And I want you to ask yourself, if you saw life this way, if Paul's prayers were answered in your life, would you feel more grateful? And here it is. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I do want to give you just a brief overview of the schedule to come. I know, it's a little abrupt transition. I don't have a better one. November 27th, starting next week. So next week, we start Advent in proper. That means we'll do either a short or a longer message, depending on the Sunday. But the short ones will be really short, like five or ten minutes. But we'll, do, we'll light a candle in a wreath. And for each candle we'll light, they're going to represent a characteristic of God. We're going to reflect on that character of God because knowing God is what leads to our surrender, what leads to our joy and our gratitude. So next week we're going to reflect on holiness. What is this word, holiness? I think it's one of the most astounding attributes of God and one of the least well-defined probably in the churches. So we're going to do our best. Actually, I don't think it's that hard. <laughs> Maybe I'm arrogant, but we're going, to, we're going to talk about it. We're going to reflect on holiness, but that's going to be a short message because we're also having a special event next week. We're going to have a leftovers potluck. So whatever you've got left over from Thanksgiving, if you want to bring it and share it, fantastic. It's a true potluck. I don't care if we end up with all desserts or all sides or all turkey because all of it is good. So bring whatever you have. And we'll trust God to do a miracle and it'll be enough. And if you're somebody who eats all the leftovers but you still want to make something, I'm not going to stop you from doing that. The official word is it's leftover potluck. But the other thing we're going to do, whether we have food or not, maybe nobody brings any food. That's okay. We're not just going to sit around and stare at each other and be hungry. We will play board games. It's going to be a games night. Okay? So we're going to gather here. We're going to play board games. We'll split up in lots of little groups. And we will have virtual options. We will have some virtual game rooms. We will have some games that you can play even by just sitting on a computer Zoom and playing the game. There's lots of games you can play without having to physically touch pieces. We did it last year. It worked out fine. So I want you to know whether you're local or long distance, you can join us for this game tonight. That's what we're doing next week. Okay? Same bat time, same bat channel. December 4th, we're going to have a longer teaching, a reflect on justice. December 11th is a virtual service because Paragon wants to use their own building. How ungrateful of them. Um, and, uh, you know, actually we're grateful to them, and that's why we think that makes perfect sense. Yes, use your building when you want so they're going to use their own building. We're going to do a service, but we'll do it virtually. So we'll be on Zoom. We'll be on Facebook. And that'll be a normal link service, but it'll be virtual. On December 18th, we'll have a shorter service. And again, each of these will be doing the Advent candle. December 18th, we'll do the fourth candle. We'll reflect on power, God's power. And that's another special event night. And that special event is one of my favorite. I really, I love as many of you as possible to come. And this absolutely works through Zoom as well. So we'll have the Zoom window open. Um, but what we'll do, what you do is you bring something you love, share something you love. Often at a fireside, it's something creative. So maybe you have a song. I'm not saying you had to have written it. If you, if you wrote it, that's great too. But maybe you have a song that you really love that you want to sing, or you just want to play a recording for us. Or maybe you have a story that you want to read or a poem that you like to share or a piece of art that you want to show us. And it could be something you created. 
That's totally acceptable. I love that. Or it can just be something you love that someone else created. That is also something I love. I just think it's so fun to get a glimpse into what other people think is beautiful. And you don't even have to always agree. It's still just fun to learn about that person, right? So you bring something, you share something you love. We'll go around the circle and we'll do that. That's what the fireside is. And um, I ask that you keep it family friendly. That's all I ask. Okay. But other than that, uh, and it's sky's the limit. And then, um, and then on December 24th, we're going to have a Christmas Eve service. So we did a poll. According to the poll, there's at least 11 of you who said you'd come. So if I end up here with just my family, I don't have quite that many in my family. So I know that that's not it. I also know they didn't all take the poll. So, uh, so it's okay if you don't come. But we're going to have the Christmas Eve service. We'll light our last candle that night. We will reflect on Emmanuel. We're going to do it at 6 o'clock on Saturday night and be out of here by 7. So if you have other Christmas Eve plans, you absolutely still have time to go do them. And I'm, I'm in that. I have family Christmas Eve plans. So we'll start at 6. We'll be done at 7. We'll get you out of here. We'll do the traditional silent night lighting of the candles. For those of you who like that, we'll also finish up our Advent and um, sing Christmas carols and have a message of reflecting on Emmanuel and uh, kind of wrap up that holiday season. All right. Everybody good? Love to see you at any and all of those. And for now, uh, go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups but at Focus Church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.